Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that hates cops. Today we have Bianca, Zoe, Julia, and Laura. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about a recent event, which is the death of Sarah Everard. And we'll be discussing the responses that that provoked with respect to both public safety and policing. And we did want to uh, mention up front that this episode is going to contain discussions about gendered violence and police violence. So we wanted to put a content warning right at the beginning just about that. And I, I just want to say we're saying the death because nothing has like been nothing has happened in the court system however she did not die of like natural causes and right we just i don't i don't want to i don't want it to sound flippant that we're saying like the death of sarah right Edward. right exactly and we're gonna be talking i mean the cop has been charged with murder so it's like yeah but i don't know yeah i guess te- this is a technicality at this point like you probably uh, didn't yeah. hear it here first you know what happened yeah yeah but for people who maybe aren't aware of what happened we did also want to give just an overview so this took place in england in south london and what happened was at around 9 p.m on march 3rd 2021 sarah everard a 33 year old woman left her friend's house to walk home and that journey would have taken about 50 minutes And there was security footage of her walking toward the direction of her home at around 930. And while she was walking, she was talking on the phone with her boyfriend for about 15 minutes. And while she was on the phone, she was agreeing to meet him somewhere the next day. And she never turned up. And when that happened, uh, her boyfriend ended up contacting the police. And so after her boyfriend called the police, they began what they called an extensive investigation. And for days, this was essentially a missing persons case because uh, investigators were like stressing that people shouldn't jump to conclusions too quickly, that there had been no evidence that anything quote unquote untoward may have happened to Sarah. Fuck off. Right. But they were just like being very, very cautious at the beginning. But then on March 10th, so a week later, police were searching in a wooded area nearby where she was walking and found human remains in a large bag, which were then later matched with dental records. Um, And that was confirmed that the remains were Sarah Everett's. And the day before that, the police, the Metropolitan Police uh, had arrested a suspect who was a serving police officer named Wayne Cousins. And I was trying to like find research or find like news reporting about um, how he became the suspects, but I actually couldn't find anything because I think this case is still so fresh that they're still coming up with like more details, but he was the person who was arrested. And um, for some background on him, he had joined the police department in September, 2018. And incidentally, a few weeks before uh, this killing, he was accused of, exposing himself to a female staff at mcdonald's so he has like a definitely a checkered and very terrible past as well um and so after he was arrested he was charged with kidnapping and murder on march 12th and he is still in custody now and as i said because this is such a fresh case i guess 
motive is still unclear. Many details about what happened were still unclear, but these are the facts that we have now. Yeah. Um, I think also like the McDonald's detail is really important because um, there's always like a pattern. I won't say always, I don't want to get added. There's very frequently a pattern (laughs) with abusers of doing, you know, maybe also smaller versions of like harassing and assaulting women. And whenever there are photos that come out, like with Biden, with Cuomo of like, oh, he's being like touchy with a woman, but that doesn't prove anything. It's like, yes, but people that clearly don't respect women's boundaries don't respect women's boundaries. Right. Right. And I think, I think it also brings up a good point of when people are pointing to those types of things and saying, hey, this thing makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, exactly. It is because it's indicative of something larger. It's not just mm-hmm. that we're uncomfortable that this person is touching our waist or or saying something to us. I think it also is because we're scared of what it means on a larger level. Right. And also it's just like behaviors that they do in the past are like behaviors that they like considered normal or accepted when in reality they are very violating behaviors and so like patterns of past behavior as Zoe said I agree are like very very indicative of like future behaviors for sure okay so there have been a wide range of responses to this murder and there were many silent vigils that took place and people all over the world were mourning Sarah Everett's loss Um, but a lot of officials took this initial stance of lamenting that women weren't safe walking around in public and that they should protect themselves. So for example, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, stated that London streets were quote unquote not safe for women or girls, end quote. And actually police in London were going door to door in South London around the area where Sarah Everett went missing. And they were telling women to like stay inside for their own safety. And now there's legislation being considered in London to make street harassment a specifically defined crime. And a lot of women were frustrated by these sorts of responses because they put the burden on women to protect themselves. And it's also like these messages suggest that there is also a defined set of things that women can do to keep themselves safe. I mean, I remember being told when I was young, like, oh, like, don't walk around alone late at night. If you do walk along well-lit paths, walk on populated routes, wear bright clothes, etc., But, like, doing those things does not guarantee anything. I mean, like, Sarah Everard was doing all of those things. And so I think it just highlights the fact that putting the onus on women to protect themselves is, like, a completely misguided thing because there's nothing that we can do to guarantee protection. Exactly. So, like, how is your solution? Oh, it's not safe for women to walk outside so stay don't, in the home so don't walk outside what like <laughs> right like so women should just stay in the home again that was right. safer than you only have to deal with your abusive husband anyway um <laughs> but you can tune right. into our marriage episode for more on that yeah so <laughs> but i did want to talk about um just like specifically the language used around this event and you know countless other similar events like described as quote-unquote violence against women which of course is specifically passive and takes out the subject like who Mm -hmm. who is committing violence against women Mm -hmm. it just comes out of thin air um and like similar language strike again who is surprised (laughs) no one (laughs) yeah and like similar language is used for like racialized violence like 
Right. It just makes it like, oh, the problem is race. The problem is women. The problem is not white men who are mm-hmm. perpetrating all of this violence. Of course not. Um, and it's like, as someone who uh, took journalism classes, brag, there are <laughs> sticklers for passive voice until it comes to reporting on like white men committing any sort of crime. We see this with shooters. Like it's always just like this town was bombed like right random bomb found like who who did it what where did it come from right yeah that's so true and i mean i totally agree it's so dark that like the best response they could come up with was to tell women to just stay inside um i mean that's so terrible for so many reasons but one specific reason is that two thirds of women who are killed, it's by someone that they know, mm-hmm. um, usually a partner or former partner. So telling people to stay inside is pretty pointless and not gonna do anything to address most violence against women. Um, and I mean, the other thing, like you said, Zoe, it's just not really a solution to the problem in any meaningful way. Like if your best solution to violence is just, you literally can't participate in public life if you're a woman, like that is not a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with everything that's been said. And I just want to say as someone who was in a severely abusive relationship, staying inside the home was the scariest place I could be. And I also think that people have no idea the extent to which women try not only to protect themselves, but each other. Like, we all regularly ask for each other to text um, when each other gets home um, and if we don't hear from our friends, we make sure they are are okay by texting other people who might know or DM them or whatever. I remember one time, this is like a, a tangent, but Zoe, I was just remembering one time when, when you were walking home and then I realized that my text stopped just going through and I think you went on airplane mode, but I was still just like, yes, but you were walking home and I just wanted to make sure that you are okay and home. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I just had a nervous breakdown and like turned my phone off. I was like, no one can contact me anymore. Um, but it's, everything was fine. But yeah, Laura was like, please, please let me know you got home. And I was like, oh, I literally turned my phone off because no one is allowed to speak to me today. (laughs) You know, sometimes that happens and it was a man's fault in case anyone's wondering. (laughs) Fair. Um, Yeah, the other really important thing to talk about here, I think, is the specific way that this incident has been weaponized by people on the right, specifically because Mm -hmm. it involves violence against a white woman. Um, This past Saturday, there was a protest of Sarah Everard's murder where participants were assaulted by police, including being physically thrown to the ground. Um, And one of the former head detectives of Scotland Yard said, quote, this wasn't Black Lives Matter. This was a sensitive issue where a woman has been murdered tragically, unquote. Yeah, it's just like, what? Like, so fucked. Um, And the person who said this and the police commissioner who was responsible for the violence against protesters are both women. The head detective, in fact, who said this is a woman of color, though she's not a black woman. Um, So let's not forget that women can be complicit in upholding these systems that harm Mm -hmm. black and brown women especially, but ultimately harm all women because we know that increased policing just doesn't actually keep anyone safe. Yeah. 
I mean, that's a really good point. And let us never forget that 53% of white women voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. It's not only about gender, but obviously violence against women, trans women, black women, and anyone who looks like a woman, including queer people in general, are often carried out by cis men. And the risk is higher with those with for those with um, overlapping marginalized identities. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I I just think this is very telling what this person said, because it shows how people who might be somewhat willing to accept some form of activism by white women will absolutely not support it and see it as dangerous or violent when the same exact thing is happening by black women and other women of color. Um, And after this happened, I saw a lot of people on Twitter talking about how horrifying it was that police treated people this way at what was supposed to be a peaceful vigil. Um, And while I think that's totally true and that is incredibly fucked, I also saw some activists pointing out that this sort of plays into the same contrast that this head detective was trying Mm -hmm. to make, which is like, this wasn't some angry, intense, like Black Lives Matter protest. It was a vigil to honor a lost life. But when Black people gather to mourn a lost life, it's often labeled as a protest regardless. So it kind of feels like a double standard to call this a vigil just because it's primarily white women attending. Mm. Um, And I also personally think that in this type of case, protest is called for and we shouldn't be Mm. agreeing to these terms that are really being set by the right, that protest is bad or dangerous or violent. Protest is an essential part of a functioning society. And when police murder people, we should be protesting. So I don't think we should minimize the very valid anger and pain that people were feeling that drove them to take this risk of gathering, even though it's currently banned um, because of COVID. And even though like there was a high likelihood police would do this type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just remember seeing videos of the um, vigils for Elijah McClain and a lot of them, including violin performances and like being really, beautiful but also you know people being angry um and cops still busting things like that up it was framed as a protest and of course there's nothing wrong with protest and we should be doing that but also that was clearly a vigil like if we're using the term vigil in this way like that has been happening also throughout the Black Lives Matter movement, it's been in combination with protests, I think, too. Right. And I also saw um, just today that I think um, one of, like, the head people in the police department has now been claiming that this event, this vigil, was, like, infiltrated by Black Lives Matter activists who are really the ones who did the violence. It wasn't the white women. Um, which reminded me of like the, the storming, of the storming of the Capitol. Storming of the Capitol. Oh my God. Like, oh, it was like Antifa and Black <laughs> Lives Matter. It's the same fucking playbook. And it's yeah. just really like, I don't know. I, I do think it's it's just very telling that that's like the only type of violence these people can imagine. Can imagine, um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I guess I also just wanted to talk a little bit about just this idea of which deaths tend to get the most attention, Mm -hmm. particularly from major media outlets and politicians. Um, Sarah Everard's death, her murder is incredibly tragic and infuriating, and it deserves to have the kind of public outcry that it's had. 
But as a lot of black activists have pointed out, there was no similar media attention just a few months ago when a 21 year old black woman named Blessing Olusegun was found dead on a beach in East Sussex. It's still unclear exactly what happened to her or who was responsible. Um, and it's unclear how much it's even being investigated by police. Um, I don't say this to minimize the tragedy of what happened to Sarah, but to point out that Blessing deserved the same support and she didn't get it. Um, And earlier this month in Ohio, actually the same day that Sarah Everard was murdered, a 23-year-old woman named Diamond Kyrie Sanders was also killed. Um, She was a Black trans woman and she was at least the 11th trans non-binary or gender non-conforming person to die by violence this year in the U.S. alone. Um, I think on a slightly more positive note, people have been able to use this moment to point out some of the other women who have been killed recently and whose deaths received far less attention. Um, And now outlets like the BBC have covered Blessing Olusegun's death. So I'm hopeful that we can push for this moment to be more of a reckoning for both Sarah's death and all of the many other tragic deaths Mm -hmm. of women, trans and gender nonconforming people that have already occurred this year. Um, All of this to say, I think it's important to remember that although Sarah Everard was white and cis, on average, it's black and brown women who are most at risk of police violence and mistreatment, and it's trans women who are most at risk of facing sexual violence by the police. Right-wing figures like Boris Johnson are already trying to talk about Sarah's death and turn this into some sort of argument for increased policing and surveillance of black and brown communities. Johnson called to, quote, make every part of the criminal justice system work to protect and defend women, unquote. But it was a part of the criminal justice system that killed Sarah Everard. And that is the reality that Black women face every single day. It's important to remember that this wasn't an isolated incident and to look at it in the overall context of police violence and violence by men generally. Yes, that's so well said. I also think this harkens back to conversations that are had every time violence by men like this occurs, which which go like, what kind of men are most likely to perpetrate violence against women and people of marginalized genders? And the problem is like, there is no set of traits. Like there's not, there's not like a cookie cutter kind of person. Like I think statistically and based on personal accounts from people in my own life and myself, and Julia mentioned this earlier as well, but it's like, The problem is that the kind of men who commit violence are indiscernible from the kind of men who don't until it's too late. And like many of us are probably familiar with the fact that the um, women most commonly experience sexual assault at the hands of someone they already know. So it's like, unfortunately, it is impossible to just pinpoint the kind of men who are quote unquote, more likely to be violent. And the problem is an institutional one and one about power relations. And it's even worse that in this case, the perpetrator was a police officer which speaks volumes about the institution of policing as well. And so that brings us to our next area of focus, which Julie has already touched on a little bit as well, which is the role of policing. Um, I think any good framework of what feminism is includes police abolition as part of that framework because we understand the state to be sexist in its rules and its design. And we understand the police to be the ones who uphold those rules and that design. So therefore, The existence of the police, especially in its current form in the U.S., the U.K., many other places, erodes this idea of a world where women and people of marginalized genders are truly liberated. And I think 
Lola Olufemi, who's a writer from the UK, puts it well in her book called Feminism Interrupted, which talks about feminism's intersection with anti-racism, anti-capitalism. She writes, quote, radical feminists have long critiqued the role of the state in propping up and maintaining sexist depression, exposing how it helps to extend control over our lives and bodies, a control that is relentlessly justified as necessary. What might a world without a police force look like? How would we organize provisions for housing and welfare without a centralized body? So she really calls into question the idea of like, what is the use of perpetrating or perpetuating, excuse me, a system that is sexist at its core? And so the solution is to abolish that system. Um, And I think even bills that are introduced in the name of keeping women safe are like all often uh, uh, counterproductive, especially when increased police presence is one of the components of that bill. Because increased police presence means increased surveillance of women in a climate where women's narratives around gendered violence are frequently called into question as it is and cast aside as unreliable when their narratives prove to be inconvenient for people in power. Um, So as an example, Olufemi writes about this bill that the conservative government in the UK introduced in February of 2018. Um, It was called the Domestic Violence Bill, and it had the intention of increasing the number of convictions for perpetrators of abuse. And so some people saw this as like a tough on crime approach to domestic violence. And like, I think people who were introducing it, it like they were presenting it as um, like a bill that stemmed from the, uh, like this, desire to care for survivors and protect them, but it's um, an example of like the way that uh, the state plays into our anxieties about women's oppression to disguise the enactment of policies that trap women in subordinate positions. Um, and Olufemi writes, quote, the domestic violence bill is by no means a feminist piece of legislation. Its focus on conviction means an increased police presence, heightening the risk that women who are victims and survivors end up in prison. The bill suggests that in some cases, the deportation of vulnerable survivors to contexts they are wholly unfamiliar with may be the best way of helping them. Research from the the Prison Reform Trust has found an increase in the number of survivors being arrested, despite the fact that their partners were the primary aggressors. 57% of women in prison are the survivors of domestic abuse. So this highlights the fact that even bills that are like, oh, like this is for the good of survivors, it's counterproductive because... Like in many cases, it is the survivors who are then imprisoned. And also just like the presence of police in general, uh, just like increases surveillance against women. And that is like never a good thing. And so there's also survey data that bears out the fact that many women do not trust the police to handle cases of sexual assault or intimate partner violence. So there was a 2015 survey conducted by the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which interviewed 637 women who had experienced intimate partner violence. And in their their survey, they found that for uh, women who had never called the police, but were experiencing intimate partner violence, Four in five of those women said that uh, they were somewhat or extremely afraid to call the police. And like they were saying things like, oh, the police would probably not take me seriously. The police would make things worse. They be- many of them believed the police would not believe them or they would do nothing. And so this, this is like women who had never called the police before. And there's already this level of apprehension that the police were not going to do anything to aid them. And so like for... Um, survey participants who had called the police before, they 
the survey found that women actually felt less safe after calling the police. They found that one in three victims of intimate partner violence felt less safe after calling the police. And one in two victims felt that there was actually no difference in safety after the police uh, intervened. And in like their words, anecdotally, they were saying things like the uh, police had sympathized with the man, the perpetrator of the violence. And the police said that I, as the victim, just needed to stay away from the man and like just patterns of the police not taking women's words seriously mm-hmm. and putting the onus again on them to just stay away from the men and like not actually uh, say that like it is the man's fault for committing that harm. Exactly. And it makes it even worse when their murder in this case was literally a police officer. And so it's like for like people who feel that like cops would sympathize with male perpetrators like it would actually be even worse in this case because like it would make like the cops would obviously sympathize with their own kind and so just any introduction of more police into the situations like this are like not helpful at all and actually can be very harmful but yeah also um a lot of people have probably seen this um as of recording this news came out last night that one of the responses to Sarah Everard's death is that cops will be going undercover in bars to quote unquote protect women, which is literally so disgusting. I'm so upset about this. It's my worst nightmare. That scares the shit out of me. I'm convinced that yeah. if I haven't seen any women, at least that think this is a good idea, but I'm convinced if there are that they watch too much SVU and like don't know propaganda is fake. Like I'm sure there's like carceral feminists that are like amazing. Um, their brains are rotted. But (laughs) as we've discussed, Sarah was literally murdered by a cop. Um, Also, Bianca was saying before that, like, no men are necessarily more likely to be abusers, which is true. And also cops are two to four times more likely um, than the general population. That's true. To be domestic abusers. And that's just the ones that get reported. Um, Like Bianca was just talking about how already hesitant people are to report domestic abuse to the police. Imagine if your abuser is part of the police. Um, So that number feels probably very low um, compared to what is true. Also, as someone who's like worked in bars and been to plenty, um, have I been harassed by a lot of men? Yes. Have I ever thought, wow, I wish there were more cops here? No, absolutely Mm -hmm. not. Never once did that seem like a good solution. Yeah. Also, it's just like, how many times have we all been harassed by cops? Like, that's literally happened to me so often. It's just like the idea that they would protect you is so laughable. Right. And just like the fact that they're going to be in plain clothes. I'm like, that makes me so nervous. Right. I'm like, literally any of these people could be cops. Like, that scares the shit out of me. Right. (laughs) So much worse. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to read um, an article from or at least part of from the times uh which is a uk publication evidently found it screenshotted on twitter (laughs) um but okay so the headline is plain clothes police will patrol bars and clubs to protect women it's a real article though i swear um so here we go bars and clubs will be patrolled by plain clothes police at night to protect women from sexual harassment and assault we've already talked about this laughable okay Boris Johnson announced measures last night in an attempt to reassure women after the killing of Sarah Everard. Hmm, by who? Interesting journalism. 
Uh, pilot schemes will be run across the country with more patrols to, quote, identify predatory and suspicious offenders, end quote. The government is doubling a fund that provides deterrence such as better lighting and CCTV to uh, 45 million pounds. Um, so, right, we're already just using this murder to, like, increase funds that go to... 45 million? Place. Yeah. Um, Johnson said wow. that the Everard case has unleashed a wave of feeling about women not... Has unleashed a wave of feeling about women not feeling safe. What kind of quote? Okay. Adding, we must drive out violence against women and girls and make every part of the criminal justice system work to better protect and defend them. Like... As Bianca went over, no, abolish it. It's not. It's not going to work that way. Ugh, this article is so like. Who, oh my god! I mean, I know who it just doesn't sound right very here, well written. I'm just going to say that right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's I really not. So much passive voice. It's like, what are they even referring to? Because the they're trying so hard to right, <laughs> yeah. like trying so hard to like avoid saying the actual things. Right. But um, yeah. So that's their big master plan for this. <laughs> That's so stupid. Ew. I'm already terrified about men in public and then men with a ton of power. Ugh. So, yeah, I just want to call attention to the fact that people who choose to be cops are overwhelmingly aggressive cis men. And they come with their own sets of biases. And then, you know, weapons in the world's most the world's worst but most powerful union backs them to do what they do, which is terrorism. Um, and I just wanted to talk about police unions for a second. I don't think we've like really talked about it much, but I think part of why police are never convicted of crimes and why a lot of them keep their jobs and why a lot of these things get hushed up and like pushed under the rug. And like, I'm sure that media stuff is connected to it, but it's really important to remember that the additional layer of potential for a man to commit violence and get away with it um is is heightened by them being a cop um so i just wanted to give an anecdote about buffalo you know about buffalo's uh police union which is called the police benevolent association I just want everyone to take that in for what a second. What the heck? Yeah. Um, the president of this union, John Evans, has actively defended the officers who pushed 75-year-old protester Martin Gugino to the ground. Gugino to the ground. Um, this video went around a lot. He's an old man, and he literally was kneeling, and he was pushed to the ground and started bleeding out of his ears. And literally the union president was like, totally fine and i just want to remember remind people that these are the the ones in charge and i also want to talk really briefly about how police unions aren't actual unions that we can ever respect ever ever um they always have had a role in white ethnic conservatism and white upholding white supremacism upholding white supremacy and you know when the civil rights movement was happening in the 60s. It was uh, really common for people like in the Black Panther Party to connect with unions. 
and collaborate with the working class. You know, we saw this a lot with Fred Hampton in um, Chicago. And I think it's just important to remember that these are that cops have the most not only the most important lobbying group in local government. uh, So they're influencing where budgeting goes to and how things are carried out. It's just it's really fucked. And I just need to I need to say that like that I feel like heightens the fear that people have when they're interact when they are faced with an interaction with a cop. Right. I also want to highlight another thing that insulates cops from facing consequences, which is the statute of qualified immunity. It's like it's so messed up. I mean, what it is, it's like this legal principle that grants government officials, which includes cops, uh, the ability to perform discretionary functions and they will be immune from facing civil charges if they can show that like they were uh, acting within their established statutory or constitutional rights. Mm. And so this is like often what cops tend to go to when they do something like murder someone or enter somebody's home without or like violently or without just cause or do something like very, very violent then they fall back on this qualified immunity because they have like this like level of insulation because they were like, oh, we had like just cause to do this. And so um, like, therefore we won't be facing any consequences for this. I was like listening to a different podcast called five to four. That's specifically- You listen to other podcasts? Podcasts? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) I dabble in other no um on my one other podcast that I listened to one time I was like listening to them talk about just like how dangerous this statute of qualified immunity is because it's like um like cops can only be charged if there is like a precedent before that was like oh this cop was found guilty of doing this thing so it's like I don't even know if I'm explaining this well but it's like because no two incidents that cops are involved in are the exact same. This idea of there being a legal precedent doesn't really even exist. And so like cops can always fall back on the statute of qualified immunity because there is never really a legal precedent that says that what they did was illegal. And so it's like the idea of police unions is like a huge layer of insulation and then added on to that is the statute of qualified immunity. And so it's like cops have all these layers of protection that like prevent them from actually facing any real consequences. And I think that's also a danger and like another reason why the whole institution should just be abolished. Yeah. yeah. Also with the plain clothes thing that we were just talking about, like when cops are like undercover, or like not in uniform, it's even more unlikely that they're charged or convicted of things because that's used as like oh they weren't in uniform right right so i was a legal observer for a time and so i would go to protests and like what my role was was to watch the cops you probably Mm -hmm. if you've been to a protest you may have seen someone with those green hats um or armbands or whatever and uh in in the training uh one of the things that we are told is that legally cops have to say they're firing into a crowd before they fire into a crowd 
and they will sometimes say it under their breath so that they can like qualify under this immunity. Um, I can't do it anymore. It's too stressful. So I really appreciate yeah, people so- who do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree. And I think I also just wanted to talk about, um, I saw this blog post recently uh, by Charlotte Shane, who is a writer and sex worker and editor of the sex worker service journalism outlet that's amazingly named Tits and Sass. Um, Just because I think it is important to consider the perspective of sex workers here as well, because they do so often face increased violence, including sexual violence from police. Um, So Shane wrote in this blog post about the possibility that the police officer who killed Sarah Everard could have basically used his status as a police officer to get close to her, maybe pretending that he was on duty or telling her he was a police officer so she would feel more forced to comply with what he was telling her to do. Um, We obviously don't know that this is what happened, but there is a lot of evidence that police officers do this all the time. So it's really not a stretch. Um, And when we factor in, like Laura was talking about, the huge percentage of cops who are cis men, it really becomes clear how this position of authority increases their ability to enact racist, sexist, and transphobic violence. Um, She also wrote in this post, quote, I'd be exponentially more afraid for my life to refuse a cop who said, come with me, than I would to tell a random cat caller to fuck off. And I'd feel much less at liberty to try to defend myself with force if the man menacing me were in uniform. Mm -hmm. That's not because I respect one more than the other. It's because only one of those parties knows they're above the law, unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think this is like fully universally true. Um, Shane is white. And I think when it comes to especially wealthy white men committing violence against black and brown poor women they are essentially above the law in a lot of ways um that the criminal legal system isn't set up to care about that type of violence and i think a lot of them know it and so there is that aspect there sometimes as well but i do think this is particularly true in the case of cops and other law enforcement officials um we see it with immigration enforcement as well mm-hmm. where they basically know that they can get away with anything. And that is a huge encouragement to do whatever harm you feel like doing that maybe if you didn't have this official backing behind you, you would be a little more hesitant to do it. And this is essentially just a free pass to know that you probably will be able to get away with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to shout out a book called push out i think they're also coming out with a documentary or maybe it's already out um the book is by monique morris and it talks specifically about the black girl in school to prison pipeline um and how it stems from policing in schools um and i think that it's really important to understand that when police are in schools we're teaching teens young girls to feel completely powerless Uh, When we accept cops in schools, we're telling young people to respect this person who can not only carry out heinous crimes against the student body, but can literally put them into the prison system. And it's just like, want to hammer home? Cops are not and will never be the answer to stopping violence against women. And abolition is one of the key solutions to healing violence against women. Because it means we actually put men in therapy and practice real healing, which our society is in desperate 
need of. In conclusion, everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> also, um, a plug for Open Path. Um, they don't sponsor me. I just think it's great. Um, this is how I found my therapist. But so it's like a national network. And um, I believe they're present pretty much everywhere. Um, and you like self-report your income and like uh, why you need like low fee therapy and then you get an ID number. Um, and like the maximum is like 50 per session, but you talk to your therapist and like agree on like what you can pay. Um, like I know people that pay like $5. Um, obviously there's other like barriers to access, but just like, I think that's a good resource if like your insurance doesn't cover it or you like have a hard time finding someone that is affordable. Amazing. I've like brought this up so many times and then like people always DM me later being like, wait, what was that called? <laughs> Open yes. path. Openpath.com, I think. Not <laughs> sponsored content, but you could if you wanted. <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd be supported by you. Hell yeah. Everyone should be in therapy. That's like actually a sponsorship I would be down with. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we actually wanted to um, bring in another piece of this uh, and since the attacks um that as um so we we recorded the original segment yesterday um before the attacks and uh so we just wanted to follow this up and also say that kellen is with us now (laughs) right but i think this literally happened or i was hearing about it basically as soon as we wrapped up recording yesterday yeah so this is a very live update i guess yes yeah, so obviously um, the what the first part of this episode has been talking about has been gendered violence, um, and we didn't feel like it would be right to release this episode without talking about the attacks that have happened in Atlanta um, that have been focused on Asian American women. Um, and so we are doing a little bit of an update to the episode right now. I'm Kellen. I'm here. <laughs> I couldn't make it yesterday, but I am here for this this sort of second, not half, it'll be a short little, little chunk, but this second part of our episode. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess we wanted to start with just a summary of what happened so that um, people can kind of follow along. If you haven't been paying attention or, you know, if you haven't gotten some of the updates, I know that the story has been changing as more um, details have come out. So what we know right now, and right now means Wednesday, March 17th at about 2.30 p.m. is that a man killed eight people and injured one other outside of Atlanta um, on Tuesday, March 16th. Um, Six of the eight dead are Asian women. These killings took place in um, three different settings. In the first, um, around 5 p.m. on Tuesday, he shot three women and two men in a massage parlor. One of those men did survive. Then he drove to another suburb of Atlanta and shot four Asian women at two more massage parlors. Um, The killer in question is 21 years old and white and has been apprehended and claims to be a sex addict and also to have visited these massage parlors before. Can I just say the f- again, like we need to recognize the difference in how police apprehended this man right. mm-hmm. and how police interfere when it's someone who isn't a white person. And also the way that the media re- is reporting his account of what happened and basically <sighs> stating 
his narrative as something to be taken at face value as the truth which is something that really only white people are afforded. So, right. Yeah. We've also gotten, I've seen already like an overview of his church activities that the media has put out, which <laughs> like matters insofar as Christianity can serve as an incubator for white supremacy and, and um, you know, really toxic ideas about sex and masculinity. But that's obviously not how it was portrayed in the account that I saw. It was, you know, that he was a good church going boy, that his family was active in his church community, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the fact that like, we can't divorce what happened here from the violence that sex workers face and especially non-white sex workers. Um, It was also when I was first hearing about this this morning um, because I came home from striking last night and literally went to sleep immediately. Um, I slept for like 14 hours. So I didn't hear about this until this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was anyway. So yeah, so I didn't know about it. I didn't know about it until I woke up this morning. And I was hearing the phrase spa used a lot, which is not quite the same and sort of covers up what we're actually talking about here, which is sex work. Um, And I think that when we're talking, the the fact that we're talking about sex workers and the fact that we're talking about non-white and specifically Asian sex workers is really, really important to what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of violence and coercive prostitution of Asian women by the American military, which I think is really important here um, because there are colonial narratives that are central in the way that Asian American women and their sexuality is portrayed in the media and in culture writ large. And a lot of that comes from America's colonial ambitions um, in Asia. And so during World War II, for example, Korean and Japanese, and by Japanese specifically, I mean, especially Okinawan and um, also Filipino women were um, exploited by men in the American military. There were certainly people who were um, sex workers working of their own accord, but a great number of these people were in coercive situations. Um, this is like perhaps the most famous example of the American military engaging in um, really exploitative sex practices with Asian women, but we have evidence of rape and sexual assault in Asia by American military members dating back to the 19th century. Um, Of course, there are other European colonialist powers that were doing the same thing in Asia. This is not exclusively an American story. Um, And so this this history of, of sort of white male dominance over Asian women is centuries old. Um, And the trend has unfortunately continued in the post-war era. So in a recent episode, we talked about how the experiences that comfort women, quote unquote, which is women who were used as sexual slaves by Japanese soldiers during World War II, have harmed relations between South Korea and Japan. But Korean women have argued and have seen these claims really ignored by the Korean government that their own government coerced them into the sex trade in order to quote unquote service American troops who were sanctioned in the country and particularly at the border with North Korea as late as the 1980s. Um, And in 1995, there was a really infamous case in which three US Marines who were stationed in Okinawa raped a 12 year old Japanese girl 
And that event made international high, um, headlines. And, and if you're interested in this history, um, Catherine Moon, who is a um, professor at Wellesley, has written a lot about the 20th century implications of U.S. military and their um, sort of sexual exploitation of Asian women of a variety of ethnicities. Um, and I think that this is deeply connected, this history, to the stereotypes that exist um, in American culture mm-hmm. of Asian women as both submissive and sexually available. Yeah. And um, I don't know if anybody else had anything they wanted to say on that. And these stereotypes are all over American media. You see them propagated by um, men online Um And this guy who was arrested considers himself supposedly, you know, from what the media is reporting, an incel. Um, But that sort of self-designation, I think, does a lot to erase the particular racialized Mm -hmm. aspects of the violence that he committed. Um, And the other sort of side of that coin is it's racialized, but it's also about the precarious labor conditions of sex workers who have to work under the table, who aren't recognized by the government, who don't have really like any sort of labor protections. And this issue is just compounded by the fact that these are immigrant sex workers. Um, And there is like a whole history about, um, Asian sex workers and the way that the government has targeted them specifically that I think is also really important. Yeah. So I wanted to mention this one piece of legislation that goes back to 1875 was called the Page Act. And it's named after its sponsor, who is a Republican representative named Horace F. Page, who introduced it to, quote unquote, end the danger of cheap Chinese labor and immoral Chinese women. So already he is painting Um, Chinese women, Asian women as like a sexual commodity who are inherently dangerous and have to be rooted out. And so what this act did was it it barred the entry of immigrants who were seen as quote unquote undesirable, which included East Asian women who were believed to be engaging in prostitution. So again, this emphasizes this long history of Asian women who have been viewed as hypersexual and also as commodities. And it's probably one of the earliest pieces of evidence that like Uh, where the government is like specifically criminalizing and policing sex work. Um, And as Kellen was saying earlier, like because sex work is criminalized still, many of the women doing survival work as sex workers have to do it in secret with no support from the government, really no support whatsoever. And with the knowledge that they could be facing criminal consequences for just simply trying to make a living. Right. And this is really important. Like the point that Bianca is making here that, um we there's this long history of coerced sexual sexually violent um sex work that um the united states has um that the united states has with respect to asian american and asian women but there's also the issue of the fact that like not sex work is work i mean all work is coercive in some form or another mm-hmm. um but you also have this history of really coercive um, sexual exploitation that's going on that's tied up into all of this. And there you add to that the layers of the history of um, uh the difficulties immigrants face, especially non-English speaking immigrants. We don't know, you know, specifically whether these women were English speakers or not. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
obviously a great number of, of immigrants to America are not native English speakers. Um, most of them aren't. And that adds another layer of um, vulnerability. And then you add to this as well, this expectation that w- women be available for sex, especially when they're sex workers, mm-hmm. um, regardless of questions of consent. And that expectation, again, like we're beating a drum here, the <laughs> expectation is amplified when it's not white women mm-hmm. in question. Um, and we know that this man um, seems to have visited these massage parlors before, and the narrative that's emerging is that he wanted to get rid of these sites of temptation, which speaks to all of the issues that we're discussing here. Right. I just wanted to talk about how the media, specifically this one article that I saw on ABC, reported this man's explanations for what he did. Um <sighs> The man's name is Robert Aaron Long, and the article said, quote, the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office said Long confessed to the shootings in Cherokee County and Atlanta. Long told investigators that he blames the massage parlors for providing an outlet for his addiction to sex. Long told investigators that the crimes were not racially motivated. And this article just reports these accounts as like, this is objective truth. This is what he said without any analysis of whether that actually is true especially since like this idea that he targeted massage parlors which were run by asian women like he's automatically viewing these massage parlors and the women who run them as sexual commodities to Mm -hmm. be eliminated that is literally what makes it a racially motivated crime like there is not a question that it is even though he is saying that it was not like if you just analyze the, like the power dynamics of what happened, you can obviously see that it was racially motivated. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also saw a tweet on this. I mean, Bianca, you said it perfectly. So they, um, this is just an aside. There mm-hmm. was a tweet that was like the audacity of insisting that the murders of multiple Asian women in Cherokee County Georgia is not related to race. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Is I mean just absolutely absurd. Like yeah. It's a, it the, the you can't I mean truly nowhere in America can you like separate race from virtually anything that happens. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. But just the 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 absurdity of being like yeah this Cherokee County murder of Asian immigrant women was unrelated to any kind of racial animus animus is um boggles the mind right really. yeah and i mean i was hearing about this event when it was first being reported and i was so struck by how long it took the media to say that there was like a racially motivated pattern for these attacks mm. i think at first they were even saying that they weren't sure whether there was a connection between the multiple sites of the attacks. I was like, this man attacked three massage parlors. What do you mean there's no connection? I think I'm just like, there's, I'm just very upset with like the way that mainstream media is reporting about this, about other anti-Asian crimes where like, first of all, they're just not calling it for what it is. And second of all, it's, they're sort of creating this flattened narrative where the focus is on the racist motivations. And like, it is true that these crimes are racist, but what I want to see more of is an emphasis on like who specifically within the Asian community is being attacked. Mm. In this case, it was working class Asian women. 
And I mean, since it's, I mean, details are still emerging, we don't know a ton of details about their backgrounds yet, because again, the media has not reported them. But we know that many of the attacks against Asian people are against the most vulnerable and those who receive the fewest structural protections. So that includes women, sex workers, the elderly, new immigrants. Um, And that is like a consistent pattern that we've been seeing. And I think that the attackers know that these people in these groups make for easy target targets, and that's why they're targeting them. And I guess this is also not to say that Asian people of all class backgrounds don't experience racism and harassment, because I think it's also important to highlight how pervasive that harassment is. Um, But it is crucial to point out that the most violent attacks are happening against the most vulnerable people. We did talk about this earlier too, but I'm also not seeing mainstream media report on the precarity of sex workers' lives Mm -hmm. and how that fed into these murders. And my hunch is that this is out of like some sort of desire for like respectability where they just don't want to take a firm stance on sex work because they feel like there's some stigma that surrounds it, which is like a completely abhorrent standpoint to take. I also think that there is this like, I would, I mean, this is again, like a hunch, but I wonder if there's a sort of, misguided sense that it there's it reflects poorly on the victims of this attack to refer to them as sex workers right um which all that does is like you said bianca further stigmatize sex work right right yeah so lots of shortcomings and again we've talked we talked about this earlier on in the first portion of this episode but I want to emphasize here again that the answer to preventing these attacks and murders like these is not more policing. Um, The sex work industry has already been made more precarious just by the existence of the police who criminalize their actions, raid their workplaces, and put sex workers in the way of real bodily harm. And as a very um, stark and violent example of this, in 2017, a woman in Flushing named Yang Song, who was a sex worker at a massage parlor, fell four stories onto a sidewalk as a result of being chased down by police during a sting operation, and she died as a result of that. And a year before that, she had been raped by an undercover police officer. And after she reported this, she had become a victim of harassment by the NYPD, who threatened to deport her if she didn't become an undercover informant for them. And so, like, since sex work is still criminalized, and often under the guise of, like, human trafficking laws, and the police are, like, very much like surveilling killing sex workers there's like no safety that sex workers can find from the police so i also hope that like as a result of these murders the answers that elected officials are going to are not like we need more police or things like that yeah um so i just wanted to read some statistics from uh the organization stop uh asian american and pacific islander hate And their national report, which is from March 19th, 2020 to February 28th, 2021, which I think is just noteworthy because it's of it like we never have data like this that is so fresh, um, freshly published. Um, uh, But so they noted that they received 3,795 reports of anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents. Um, And in their findings, businesses are the primary site of discrimination at 35.4%. So this means in their workplace, followed by public and street harassment and online harassment. 
68% of these incidents involved verbal harassment. And this just gets back to what we were discussing in um, the earlier part of this episode, where these issues of violence are not separate from verbal harassment. Yeah. And I just want to say, um, because people have this mentality that these things don't happen in blue states or whatever the fuck that the top states of anti-Asian American and Pacific Islander hate crimes are as follows. California reigns first with 1,691 or 45% of hate crimes reported. And again, so many of these incidents go unreported. New York is second with um, 517 hate crimes or 14% of these incidents reported. And Washington State comes in third with 4% of these hate crimes. I think it's really important that those of us who live in these states take ownership over calling out this behavior when we see it. Obviously, this is something that I as a white person can do with my privilege. And I'm not saying that if it puts you at risk or harm by calling out this behavior that you should do so. But I do think it's important that whether it's online harassment or street harassment or a comment you hear at the nail salon that you call that shit out. This violence that Asian American and Pacific Islander women receive is rooted in these verbal comments. And I just think it's really important that we make racists uncomfortable with their racism. And any white person who feels attacked by the word racist needs to like really sit with themselves and think about themselves as the problem. And I think if you're a white listener of this podcast, that you really need to confront the uncomfortable reality of your whiteness. And I highly recommend the Me and White Supremacy Workbook by Layla F. Saad. Um, it's like a, a daily thing that is like rigorous and intense. But I honestly think that it is the only way to to stop this violence is by is by having individual people confront that. So I just think it's really important. And just to echo what has already been said, this is a working class women's and gender nonconforming issue. The working class is racialized and it's important for us to take ownership and recognize those dynamics. But I think we also need to see ourselves as a nail technician or sex worker. If you're a computer engineer or someone who can work in a science lab in a safe environment away from the public, it's important to give your money that you earn in a safe environment and tip generously to the people who can't afford that safety. Yeah. And this kind of flows well into just like something that I wanted to highlight, which is just organizations that people can support who are doing on the ground work related to sex workers' rights and decriminalization. Um, the first is Red Canary Song, which I believe is flushing based, but it's a grassroots collective of Asian and migrant sex workers who actually came together as a result of Young Song's murder to raise legal fees for her. And they now are organizing for full decriminalization of sex work and sex workers' rights and they do organizing organizing work transnationally and you can go to their website redcanarysong.net to learn more about them and also donate to them um, if you have the means to uh, similarly another organization is called butterfly they're based in toronto and they also 
are an Asian and migrant sex workers support network. You can go to their website, butterflysw.org to learn more about them and donate as well. Um, but yeah, uh, as a Chinese person, I guess I just want to say that if there are other Asian listeners to this podcast who are hurting or are fearful for themselves, their family, their loved ones, I just want to express solidarity with you. And I hope that we are able to imagine a safer world where this doesn't happen anymore. Hell yeah. Currently finishing up uh, our very cool reading group by uh, finishing Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. Up next, we're not quite sure, but we're thinking Ursula Le Guin. Uh, we also have d- the Discord, which is perfect um, in every single fucking way. Uh, and honestly, I've heard it's the best place on the internet. It it definitely is. People yeah. are saying this. Yeah, many people are. Saying, <laughs> many I'm, people I'm always are saying, saying this. <laughs> many people come to us and say, you know, the Discord really is the best place on the internet. Look, we have a community quilt going on there. Oh, I have to do mine. I do too. Okay, We're coming. Yeah, I soon. <laughs> Jay, you know who you are. We love you. Okay. Anyway, uh, you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Season of the Bee. Uh, <laughs> you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, and tell your friends about us. Love you. Love, love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Bitch. Oh.